You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Curtain up, theater people, and welcome to your program is your ticket, coming to you from the Hell's Kitchen area of Midtown Manhattan, right smack dab in the middle of Broadway. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your program is your ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, and if you're a newbie to theater, let me explain it to you. Your program is your ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater in smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works that we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. I love theater and see as much as I can wherever I go. During the travels of the production of my husband and my play, At the Flash, I've met many wonderful people from all over the world in the theater community, and it is my honor to bring them on as guests to the show. Tonight's guest will be a fabulous powerhouse Chicago-based actor who has also worked in the roles of literary manager and dramaturg Melissa Young. She's an adorable, adorable lady and just, like, talented beyond belief. Uh, We'll be bringing her on in just a few minutes, but first I'd like to talk about the general process of writing and developing an original piece of theater. In particular, in this case, a musical uh, in which the prolific Melissa has extensive experience. People have said to me, sometimes in in sort of a very casual way, we should write a play or a musical together, or they even just ask me, how do you go about doing that? Well, let me tell you, (laughs) it can be a very, very long process, and I'm going to talk about the original musical that I co-wrote with my my musical writing partner, uh, the, the terrific composer Leo Schwartz who is, was our, my first guest on the first show. It's an original musical called Running. And uh, we, uh, when you write a musical, there are three essential roles that occur uh, in the writing process. There is what's called the book writer, and the book writer is typically the person who creates the characters and the storyline and, um, and, and makes sure that, that the arc and the pathos and uh, all of that are there, that the narrative pull and focus is is happening, and that the characters are changing, things like that. Um, they also are responsible for writing the little scenelets that, that happen in between the songs. Sometimes they're little scenelets, sometimes they're a little long, but hopefully they're short and concise and get you to the next song, because <laughs> typically that's what you're there for. And speaking of that, the person who writes the songs typically is the lyricist and the composer. Now, sometimes these are two different people. 
uh, sometimes they're one person. And uh, in, in this case, it's with running it was one person. It's, that's Leo Schwartz. He wrote the lyrics and the music. So those roles were all set. Um, the first draft of, of the musical typically comes from an idea. It comes from a statement that the author wants to make. It could be about um, politics, government, uh, which is a lot lately, um, social issues, uh, education, anything, any, any, anything that is it's sort of like a hypothesis that the, the uh, writers are looking into and, and trying to bring something out of. In the case of running, Leo and I wanted to explore the effect of a political scandal on a family and ask the question, what if this scandal made the family closer instead of breaking it apart? Now, with the musical, on top of that, you sort of specifically ask the question, does the book lead the story or do the songs lead the story? And uh, in the case of Running, the book led the story. It's a very narrative musical about this family, and, and it follows a, a, a line of political, sometimes espionage, and, and, and so that, that needed to be written first before Leo came in and worked on the music. Um, in, in, in the case of the new musical that we're writing, which he referenced in the first show, uh, it's called We the People. That's sort of a presentational piece where the songs the songs lead the the story, and I come in and he's writing the songs, and I come in and add in the book. So it's a little confusing, but you know we'll stick with running here. Uh, so in that case, um, I wrote the book, and Leo kept an eye on it for a few years to find a draft, which I think it was like draft twelve or something like that, that made him feel like music could be weaved into the story. During that time, we had two. Uh, readings where I assembled casts and uh, they just sat and basically read this script that had no music to it. One was in Los Angeles, which Leo Skyped in. By the way, Leo lives in Chicago and I live in New York. And at the time I lived in, for a while I lived in, well, I lived in LA up until about two years ago. And then I moved to New York. And, and we both actually wrote, write our musicals over like Facebook instant messaging and, and uh, emails, it's, it's crazy that technology will let us do that. It's very, very cool. But anyways, we had two book readings. One was in Los Angeles, and then one was in Chicago. And by the time we got to Chicago, Leo, Leo was ready to write music. Now, as he writes the music, and, and as I work on the book, both writers are involved. We bounce ideas off of each other and um, the, uh, about you know what, what characters are doing, what they want to do, what their intentions are. Um, so we're, we're both actively involved. It's not like, oh, here, write the songs and, and I'll just sit here for a while. <laughs> um, and, and then after that was done, Melissa came in and she actually was the acting dramaturge of the script. She came in and um, a dramaturge does sort of an analysis of the kinks in the story, what works, what doesn't. Um, they look into like historical facts. They, wrote, they write very, very critical responses and questions to what's happening in the story. And then the, the writers respond to that. And that's great to have because sometimes we're, you know, we're so working on one scene that some things get lost in the big picture. So it's such an important part. After that, we auditioned people and recorded a uh, demo in a studio of all of the songs. And uh, Melissa actually has two roles in um, the, the process of running in addition to being dramaturge, she was also selected to play uh, the character of Leslie Marks, who has—he's kind of a little bit evil and devious, and we love that. And she lends her incredible talents to a very 
difficult character and a powerhouse number in Act Two that I've been taking pieces of this to my writers group here in New York City, and I took that particular part, and they loved that number. They were just smiling, and they, they loved it. After that, we performed a live reading in Chicago, and we also created the social media and maintained that. And on, after that, we go into things like submissions to competitions and festivals. So that's what it takes to write a musical. <laughs> and it's different if you're writing an adaptation. Um, every project has its own map, and that's sort of like how it works. But I, I know this seems overwhelming to the new writer, but the process, to, for me, is something that you have to love. I think it's absolutely amazing and extremely creative, and I enjoy a reading as much as I do a performance, as, as much as I do writing it and, and, uh, or recording demos. I, I love it all. And if you look, if, if that's how you feel and that's how you look at it, I think, I think you're going to be okay as you go from, you know, from just your idea onto the computer and to the microphone and then onto the stage. Some, some musicals take decades before they're up and running. So anyways, that's sort of how you do it. And so now I'm going to bring on our guest. As I indicated earlier, today's guest is the amazing actor, literary manager, and dramaturge, Melissa Young. Hi, Melissa, and welcome to your program is your ticket. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm super excited to be here, and I love talking about the process of new work, so I'm really excited to get into it because I could talk about it for hours. Shoot! <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit about yourself that I haven't already departed and your creative theater passion. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. And it's funny because a lot of people say, well, you're an artist. I am, uh, you know, I'm a comedian and I'm a, a, a vocalist for sure and an actor. And um, but I also really and I'm a director and I really love to work with playwrights who are working on new works because I'm a strong believer that if people aren't writing plays, then theater will go no Aware. And I'm always anxious to see what writers are doing now and how we're going to move theater into the future. And I just kind of fell into this role. I had a friend of mine who wrote a play and we workshopped it together for over three and a half years and took it to the we did a production here in Chicago and took it to the New York International Fringe Festival um, back in, you know, a couple moons ago. Mm. And um, it was just kind of how it all started. And because of how I worked with him, other writers heard how well I worked and then I got working with um, what used to be called New Tuners here in Chicago, which used to be this um, new musical festival where they would develop new musicals, but it starts like with a 15-minute musical and I worked on 15-minute musical and I believe Leo actually talked about um, his one play, uh, uh, Me and Al, mm -hmm. which was part of the New Tuners process, which is funny because I was part of New Tuners as well as an actor and a director. And so being able to workshop new musicals kind of came into my wheelhouse too. And then it just kind of steamrolled from there. It was very much like I did this one play <laughs> for three years. And then from there, I just kept working with new playwrights. And um, I think it stems a lot from um, one of my professors at Point Park University, which is where I went to school. He embarked upon, uh, like embarked upon us that the playwright is God. And everybody else is just a tool to tell the playwright's story in the playwright's world. And so I think because I have that mentality, 
playwrights really like me because <laughs> I tell them I tell them they're God, and then we go from there. Oh, <laughs> I, hope that, I think that answers the question. <laughs> well, that that's really nice to hear because normally we have little to no self esteem or ego. <laughs> No, you're God. You create the world. We're just the tools to play around in the world you've created. I wouldn't spread that around too much. I think you'd get some writers with even bigger heads than they already have. Um, okay, right. <laughs> uh, so you've been in pursuit of this for, what, a couple decades now? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh yeah, a couple decades. Although, um, although if you, you asked me that, to my face, I would never answer correctly, but yeah, it's over a couple decades. I've been in Chicago since 1996, and uh, we worked the beginning of that play. I mentioned started about 98, so um, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you came in and you were auditioning uh, for the role of Leslie, and I didn't I didn't know you very well, and um, I said, you know, I looked at Leo and I said. Melissa reads really, really young. And Leo said, oh, my God, she's going to love hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I opened my mouth and everyone's like, wait, why doesn't your face look like as old as your mouth? And I'm like, it, it doesn't. My mom's 71 and she looks 52. We are fairy people and I am so pleased with it now that I'm older. But when I was younger, I hated it. But now I love it, love it, love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that for as long as you can, dear. Right, exactly. <laughs> so out of all these roles, what do you consider to be your forte, your specialty? I think my specialty is probably comedy and helping people to find their own comedy um, and workshopping other people's works that have to do with comedy. But I really think, yeah, I think my forte is comedy for sure. But um, at the same time, um, I think my forte as far as uh, dramaturgy goes is being able to honor someone else's voice and not make it about me, which I think a lot of people who workshop new works can get caught up in how they see the story and forget that it's not their story. Oh. It's the playwright's story. So I feel like it, I think that that's a gift that I, I didn't, I didn't realize it was a gift until I worked with a couple different playwrights who had been through some interesting experiences with directors. And I was like, no, that isn't the way you want your story to go. It's your story doesn't matter what the director thinks. And they were like, what? It's like, yeah, doesn't matter. It's your story. <laughs> I, I remember your, after you did uh, running, when you dramaturged that and you gave us your notes, I was like, you know what? I love all of these ideas. And it was just, it was just sort of like a nudge, nudge, you know, that was the tone. And that yeah, was it was always, I was very clear that, Hey, this is my perception and I am one person, mm -hmm. but it is your world. And I'm just like, Hey, this is what I see in your world. But if that's not the direction you want to go in, don't, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> but then clarify this in the way that it is now, because I'm not understanding and you know, that kind of stuff. I think those kinds of tones when working with playwrights are better and you can accomplish more and you can give the playwright the gift of, okay, it's your world. You've created it. You know it better than I do, but these things are unclear. 
And um, here are some simple ways that I think could clear it up without damaging the story you've already presented or taking it in a new way. But if you have something else, do that because it's your story. Right. Well, um, I, I think that it's wonderful that you're talking about this because so many people, they they see what they consider to be like the, just the, the general audience member sees what they consider to be the finished product. Right. And even if it's not the finished product in the mind of the creative team and they, they don't realize how much research and effort is going into the production, they think, oh, well, they just, you know, they rehearse and the actors memorize their lines and the music. No, the musicians do their music and then they put it's just so much more than that. So it's great that you're talking about this. Yeah, the thing I always try to tell everyone is Stephen Schwartz is still rewriting Pippin. He is still rewriting the end of Pippin all of these years later. When you go to license Pippin from MTI or whoever has the rights to it, you get like three different choices of endings because those are all the endings that Stephen Schwartz continues to write. And even this latest Broadway revival had a different ending from the last Broadway revival. And I just want to like impart upon people that like just because you think your show is done and then the general public just because you think, oh, Pippin's been was premiered on Broadway at this date doesn't mean that the show doesn't continue to change, you know, and can. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Pippin. Pippin. <laughs> still growing. <laughs> Stephen Schwartz is still not happy with Pippin. <laughs> oh my gosh. I bet that's, that's, that's great to know. And yeah, I, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's comforting. You know, it's like, you know, it's okay. You don't have to be like, well, it's already had a premiere. I can't rewrite it. No, you can. You own it. It's your property. Do it. Rewrite it. Change it. This this is true. That is that is the one power that the writer has. Uh-huh. Always. <laughs> it's mine. Yeah, the ownership. Um, while wearing your various theater hats, if you will, um, what messages and themes do you strive to convey to audiences through the projects you choose? So I try to choose projects – um, that are more, I think my focus is diversity, um, and equality. Once I like to do works that show women on equal footing with men, um, and also show people of color in a more realistic light. Um, I like those kinds of things. Um, I also really like things that are doing something differently or trying to mess with the medium in a way that nobody else has. If, you know, I guess, I mean, if, if Lynn had come to me, I would I would have helped with Hamilton, um, but uh, he did not give me a call. Uh, but I would have loved that. But um, the thing that I wish Hamilton would do now is I would love to see women play the parts as well. Okay, so now we've crossed that barrier where um, people people of color can play roles that people would assume would be played by white people mm-hmm. now let's have women playing roles that you would traditionally see men play give me nathan detroit baby i'm gonna slay it all day <laughs> guys and dolls question mark um but yeah i think that that's kind of what interests me theatrically is people who are doing those kinds of things and telling the kinds of stories that um i don't want to say more realistic stories but stories that represent the world around us rather than a segment of the population huh. that's you know, I think that, that that is so important right now, uh, that, especially in the political climate, that we as uh-huh. artists really push for 
for exhibiting diversity and and uh, showing. I, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Martin Denton for the show on, on the last show, and um, he he was talking about how uh, we really need to focus on and protect the the immigrant playwrights and artists. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's really important. And the thing is, is like anybody who's sitting here and is like, unless your people came over on the flipping Mayflower, you are from immigrant. So mm-hmm. shut up. And let's tell immigrant stories because all of our stories are immigrant stories. But now we need to look at the face of immigrant. It's so funny because if you we could go down this path, but if you look historically, I'm a big person who likes to look at the shoulders we stand on and the importance of the shoulders we stand on. Even with my playwrights, I'm like, okay, great. So and so came before you. This is what their experience was with this genre. Blah blah blah. That's you know very dramaturgical. <laughs> <laughs> but I love to know all the history and that way you can be like, great, you're writing a story about immigrant stories. Fantastic. We need them. We've already heard the immigrant stories about the Irish and the Italian immigrants who came over at the turn of the century and all the crap that they went through. We're living the same thing again and again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing to address it differently? But yeah, immigrant stories are where it's at. I really believe that. And I really believe that equality as far as gender goes and um, to try and get out of this and also gender normative stuff too and really expand again stories that represent the, the world we live in rather than segments of the world we live in oh definitely you know it's it's really interesting because you're not the only person who has uh, has expressed the idea of the women of women playing the men parts in Hamilton that's been expressed uh, quite a bit lately oh my god I want to play the king so bad (laughs) I want to be the king I just want to be the king when I am the first female king I would be hilarious and I could sing it I would play all right there was my little slay 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 there's my plug sorry (laughs) (laughs) something tells me that you're right Yes, just let me play the king. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, what do you think is an important direction theater is taking right now? I think that there are more realistic plays. Like, um, for instance, it was just in New York, and now it was just here. It just closed. Um, Gloria was here at the Goodman, Mm. and um, it was so good. And what a wonderful... I don't want to say anything to give away. If, did you see Gloria when it was in New York? Because it's, it's really special. And um, the script was it was so real, and you hated these people so much. And then um, something grand happens, and it just it makes you look at the people around you a little differently. And I had this very visceral response, and I'm looking for that experience when I go to the theater now. Like, that's what I'm looking for. And um, I recently saw a production of uh, a show called Phaedra, which mm. was the English translation of the French translation of the Greek. <laughs> so wow. it was just a little, put that around, but it was 75 minutes, no intermission. And those women were killing it. And the sound design was like, it was like watching a movie, and I, I really think that that's interesting, too. I found that really interesting, that they had scored the play like you would score a movie, and it became such an integral part of the experience that I almost forgot I was watching a play, that I had that 
that feeling when I do, when I watch a movie and the music comes and goes, but you don't notice it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that that, I think that that's, that's an interesting thing as well, you know, as well as diversity and inclusion, I'm really interested in this, like putting films on stage by adding like scoring and adding this level of production to it that, um, well, maybe make the average everyday people get off their couch and go to the theater like Hamilton's doing that. But what can we do to get them to go see a play? What can we do to get them into these theaters? So I'm interested in that kind of tactic that people are taking right now. Inclusion as well as this production element. And this was like a black box theater. Trapdoor is not a huge theater. It's like maybe 60 seats the size of my living room. And they did this beautiful scoring of the show and it was just, it was super impressive. Um, I think that that's an interesting direction that people are, at least in Chicago that people are taking things mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I, I think that, that our, I think our audiences are becoming somewhat immune and they're looking for, they're looking for more. They're looking to be more highly stimulated by not, not just, um, not just special effects and things like that and, and, right, and, and, right. and the visual visceral experience. They're looking for uh, stories that uh, challenge them and right. they're becoming more sophisticated. So we as, we as artists really have to keep an eye on that in my opinion. I agree. And I, I like, I had that experience with Gloria and I had that same experience, Gloria at the Goodman, which is this huge equity theater. And then Phaedra at this little black box, non-union off loop 64 seat theater. I had the same kind of visceral response for a completely different reason. And I think, I think what you're saying is right. Like audiences need more to be entertained. They need something to stimulate them because of just the world we live in. We can't sit through, you know, Nicholas Nickleby, without some music you know right. like it's just too much for today's audience they just can't can't manage the 12 hours nicholas sorry about it um so then how do you translate a world that's still that you know some at times is still writing the, for the nicholas nickleby audience i don't know why i'm picking on nicholas nickleby but how do you translate uh, from that world from that idea of people are just coming they're going to sit and they're going to listen to my story well, they don't have that attention span. They just don't. Even people who love those kinds of things hardly have those attention spans anymore. Yeah. And what? how do you engage those people emotionally so they will listen to the story? I find that all very interesting. I think it's where we're headed. It's it's an interesting paradigm that we're facing. Oh, I agree. And you can actually see that just in just general audience behavior. I go to the theater a lot like you. And, and whenever I'm in a theater, it's... I'll be honest. This this is a secret that I have. I wear earplugs in in the theater most of the time uh, because so many people around me just can't sit still and be quiet. Yes, and like the the and it's not just the rustling of candy, and that used to always be like the pre-show announcement joke or things and programs people would make unwrap your candy now things. Mm-hmm. It's just more than that. Is people just cannot sit in a seat for two hours and watch a show? They can't, and they move and they talk and they whisper, and it's and it's just kind of this attention, this att- keeping people's attention. And how do you do that? And how do you make? 
how do you make the rest of the theater okay for the people who can still sit still? Right. Like, how do you make it for you and I? How do we make it a theater, an enjoyable experience so we're not so focused on the people around us right. besides an aisle seat? Okay. Well, an aisle I, seat will do. Well, I'm a big guy, so I always try and get an aisle seat. Most of the time I do. I'll pay extra for an aisle seat if I if I need to. Um, and and it, it still happens. And maybe it's because, you know, we're we're theater people and we're sensitive to that. And we are, we're there to watch the show and get every – uh, uh, every moment of sensory we possibly can. Yes, so. I agree. It could be that we're hypersensitive <laughs> right. to it. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> exactly. Now, in your program, Is Your Ticket, we like to, to feature and talk about smaller productions. So what do you think is the best part about being involved with, with a smaller, more intimate uh, player musical or theater piece? I think that I think it's what it's the reason why I stay in Chicago is because of this idea that you know nobody's famous, nobody's got a whole bunch of money, and they're like, not it's not like the masses are coming to our show anyway. Let's do this really super weird thing, and if people hate it, well, they're not coming anyway. People love it. Well, then, woohoo, we did something new. And so I think it's kind of why I stay in Chicago. And because there's this smaller, the whole black box theater scene, off the off-loop theater scene, which is, you know, where Steppenwolf came from and, and some of our bigger houses, they all started in these little black box theaters, storefront theaters is what we used to call them. Um, and now it's just kind of like there's there's kind of this level of passion and – I don't know, ingenuity that happens here because of the lack of money and the idea that people are, when people can do these tremendous things, I call it, call it the magic on $5. Like, how did you make that costume happen? I know that it, I know you had $5. I know your budget was $5. How are they all in corsets and wigs? Like, what did you do? And that like, that just ugh, guttural beg, borrow, steal, hours at the thrift store thing that happens here in Chicago. I think it just, I don't know. It feeds my soul a little bit. And I don't mean, I don't mean to like be all like martyrdom, like boohoo. I can make it work with $5. Take that New York. But I do, you know, like, Oh, I'm some big hero. Cause I, I trust me. I would love a huge budget. I would love to, as a director. Yes. I would like to have things that fly on electronics, <laughs> but how do I, I love that my brain really likes the problem solving of how do you make it fly with $5? How do you make it move? Like, how do you, like I had the, when I directed drowsy chaperone, I wanted the dang bed that came out of the wall. I had to have the bed that came out of the wall. I wanted my actress to come down on it. That joke was too funny. And the idea that like, we just sat four people trying to figure out a pulley system that would look like a motorized thing and just had a really, really strong couple of stage hands that lowered my draft, my chaperone down and pulled her back up. And, you know, and we had an airplane and all that stuff on a shoestring. And, um, I just love the idea of having to figure it out. How do you make it work when you don't have the dollars, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love that piece of it. And, you know, I really do like it. It's the problem solving piece of it. And it lets me to feel really smart, too, when I can solve a problem for $5. <laughs> well, you are smart. So I am. That Very much. I am Girl Scout cookie smart. Thanks. <laughs> Chicago is a tremendous incubator for new theater. And 
takes so many risks. It was just so wonderful being there when, when we produced our show there. It's, uh, I was, I was always at the theater. I'm, I mean, I always am, but it was just so neat to see all that, all that going on. Loved it. Um, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So yeah. I, I have time for a couple more questions. Uh, what do you think every theatrical artist, director, writer, composer, actor, producer, uh, should be doing right now to be relevant and successful in the industry? to be relevant and successful, uh, this is something that when I talk to students, I always talk about is this idea that the gatekeeper is gone. So if you, it isn't like back in the day where you needed the manager and you needed the theater company and you needed this people, you know, the gatekeepers are gone. If you have some idea and you want to do it, you have to do it. Just do it. You can't sit on your couch and get famous anymore and hope your agent's going to call. If you are an actor and you're like, golly, I want to sing and no one's casting me, go to open mics and sing. Sing. That's free. Go and sing and be with other people who sing. You know, it's just kind of this. I, I, I think the thing that you could do to be relevant is produce your own work. And if no one is doing what you want them to do, stop complaining about it and make the work you want to see. That's what I choose to do because I can't sit on my couch and be like, oh, I wish there were more parts for women in their 40s. Dang it. <laughs> ah. Well, if you want parts for women in their 40s, sister, get out there and write something for women in their 40s. And that's what I'm doing. You know, and I just think that that's kind of the way to go. And again, like being isolated may work when you're writing, but then you have to leave your house. You have to go see other people's works, writers groups and um, directors groups and all of these kind of meet up things. I think we can become really isolated in the way our world is. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that you have to leave. If that means you like volunteer to help build a theater set for for some theater that you kind of like and and you want to hang out with those people or get to know them, then volunteer your time. It is a great way to get your foot in the door with a lot of people and just get to know people. I can't tell you how many people I've met. I worked um, at the box office for a theater company for a long time simply because it was a great way to meet people. And I met so many people and I can't tell you how many readings I got to be in because I worked in a box office and got to know people who were writers and directors and producers who were all just like, hey, I'm working here right now, but I'm working on this project. Hey, would you read this for me? Could you do that? And you just kind of have to like, again, if I stayed home sitting on my couch, I never would have met those people. Exactly. And they're all all generating their own work too. So if you want work and you don't have any, make it yourself or find someone to make it for you. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, It's it's all about taking responsibility for your own ambitions and then mostly – Drive and persistence. I always say drive and persistence. Try everything. If you if something doesn't work, try something else. Just keep exactly. going. Exactly. <laughs> and you will fail. You'll fail horribly. Oh, yeah. And you will rise from the ashes like the phoenix. Like 
just freaking try. It's going to feel so much better to have tried and failed than to continue to complain about there not being roles for women over 40. Okay. (laughs) I always say as a writer, you win some and you lose most. You lose most. I said, your job as an actor is 90% of the time you will be rejected. Right. Congratulations. <laughs> I know. I'm married to an actor, so I hear that yeah, a lot. <laughs> that's all it is. Right. My job is to be rejected, and the other part of my job is to stay sane, and then 1% is to actually have a gig. <laughs> right. Somewhere along the line, you need to, like, what I call water the money tree, which is make the money to live and survive. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's like everyone's like, why do you do so many things? I'm like, because I love the arts and I'm smart enough to want to do other things. It's like, you know, broaden your horizons. That way, that way that'll keep you relevant real quick. <laughs> Speaking of doing other things, can you tell us what you've been working on lately? What's got going on? <laughs> many things. Um, uh, most currently, uh, March 6th at Davenport's Piano Bar and Cabaret, I have that 70s duet show <laughs> with my good friend Dan Riley, yeah. where we're doing all of these wacky duets from the 70s. And yes, I'm old enough to remember the 70s, as is Dan Barely. Um, and then Mr. Aaron Benham, who wasn't alive in the 70s, will be at the piano. Um, and we're just like, you know... Come on, like a little Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis. You don't have to be, you don't, you don't have to be a star. Too much, too little, too late. Um, where is the love? Don't go breaking my heart. Some carpenters, a little Captain and Tennille. Like it's just going to be an hour of ridiculousness and absolute fun. So that'll be fun. Um, let me do my comedy stuff. And um, I have a bi-weekly podcast called Kiki in a Cup. Um, K-I-K-I in a cup where I drink coffee. Think about coffee shop meets piano bar meets stand-up comedy where my partner in comedy crime and music, Mr. Aaron Benham and I make up songs and have characters who sing and talk about today's events. Um, and we laugh a heck of a lot. And, uh, yeah, and then I'm going to be in a show in June, an actual production where they cast me even though I'm ancient. Um, and, uh, and I won't, I'm not going to say what it is and where it is because I don't have a signed contract yet. But, um, but yeah, that's coming this summer and I'm really excited about that. And I'm working on um, a new show with Aaron and uh, hopefully we'll have more that out in the world surely enough. But I'm always got my fingers in quite a few pots uh, so that, uh, I can keep that artist inside of me happy and fulfilled. <laughs> Kicking in a cup is hilarious. So Thank funny. you. We have a great time. <laughs> we have a really great time. You can tell. And I have one request, even though I won't be there for 70s, your 70s show. I, yes. want, I want you to, to come out in a big, like, um, frizzy permed wig. And sing, oh, yeah. you don't bring me flowers. <laughs> Of course, we have a Barbara Medley yes. because it's because she did. Don't you don't bring me flowers. Guilty was 1980, but then there's also No More Tears, Enough is Enough with Donna Summer. That was also the 70s. So we're doing a whole Barbara sang with everybody medley, which will be ridiculous, I'm sure. You need to recreate that moment at the Oscars where they came out and reconciled after years of hating. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> Wow, this this uh, this conversation has become extremely gay. Um, <laughs> before we let you go, can you give our audience all your social media information? Absolutely. I'm 
MelissaYoung.com is my website. And then KikiInACup.com is our website for the podcast. And Facebook.com slash MelissaYoungMusic, I believe, is my Facebook page. And, uh, yeah. And uh, you can follow me on, like, Instagram, too. And on Twitter, I'm MissyMe at Twitter.com. So M-I-S-S-E-Y-M-E. And then it's Kiki.In.A.Cup at Twitter.com for our Twitter handle. <laughs> Is there one particular website they can all go to and connect to all of that? Um, yeah, MelissaYoung.com. Okay, cool. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Melissa. You were wonderful and charming. Oh, thank you so much, Sean, for having me. Anytime anybody wants to talk about new work and the importance of the development of new work, I am always excited to do so. So I was honored to be on the show today to talk about something I love so very much. So thanks for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Will you come back? Absolutely. Hold me back. I'm coming back. I'm not leaving. That's wonderful. Well, before I wrap up the show, I'd I'd like to give a shout out to a show that I've seen recently and really enjoyed and recommend. And this is a wonderful show that's playing at the Laura Pels Theater at the Harold and Miriam Steinberg Center for Theater. That's a long name. Uh, It's a great theater that's, uh, I want to say it's over on 46th, and it's a downstairs theater, and they produce lots of work that transfers over to Broadway. This is a show called If I Forget, and it's um, a show by the book writer of Dear Evan Hansen, which I loved so much. And um, I was a little concerned for this guy. His name is Stephen Levinson. He's the writer because... The, the music writers for Dear Evan Hansen got, got a chance to write all the music for La La Land, so they're getting all of this recognition. I'm like, this poor book writer, he's kind of left out. And then I saw his play. It is so wonderful. Again, it's called If I Forget. It's the story of a Jewish family going through major shifts as they work to sort out an important family decision. Wonderful ensemble cast. Um, it's, uh, what is the, the name of the lady from Private Practice? Uh... Kate, well, Kate Walsh is in it, and she's and she's the big star, but she doesn't steal any focus. It's just the ensemble cast is wonderful. It's an important meditation on what to keep and what to let go of. Again, playing at the Laura Pels Theater, and tickets are on sale through April 30th. Well, folks, the proverbial 11 o'clock number has been sung and the vows have been taken, so it's time to lower the curtain. I'd like to thank our guest, the awesome and amazing Melissa Young. And if you'd like for me to give a shout-out to a show in your area or a mention of your organization, go to my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash your program is your ticket. Give me a like and shoot me a message. I'll be happy to give you the mention. Take a little time to see a show this week, and don't forget to give a smaller show some love. There's lots of theater gems out there. Well, folks, good night, everyone, and curtain. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.